Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where two editors and a special guest this week are going to take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by staff writer Alexa Gotthardt. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Alexa. And a special guest, I'm going to get your title right, Gallery Partnerships Manager and Associate Director Design, Alex Gilbert. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. So this week, as Alex's presence may have you guessing, we're going to be talking about contemporary design in the U.S. through the lens of Alexa's article that looks at 15 leading women in the field in this country. So I think a good place to begin with a list like this, before we get into the specifics of it, is is why even do it to begin with? Why spotlight women in design? Historically, women have not been given the due they deserve in the design world. It's a subject that we talk that we've talked about on this podcast before when it comes to fine art, but in the design world in particular, and maybe Alex, you can shine some light on specific examples. It's been a it's been a real issue as well. Mm-hmm. When we look at historical design, sometimes it's the case of collaboration where. Uh, you know, the the man who was the lead of a design firm uh, got credit for work that women were also contributing to. So in the case of, say, Florence Knoll uh, or, um, you know, Ray Eames with her husband, Charles, uh, it, it has taken time for people like Pat Kirkham, scholars to look back and really shed light on what that collaborative process looked like and what these women contributed to the canon of 20th century design in the States. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We were talking a little bit about this yesterday, and you were sort of saying, you know, un- unlike the visual arts where a uh, painting by women is just absent from the collection, a lot of times museums will have works by women in their collection, but they'll mm-hmm. be credited to, you know, the charismatic man who helmed the design studio. Absolutely. Yeah, there's been cases where certain works have been uh, reattributed to include, for example, Corbusier, Pierre Generet, uh, Charlotte Perrion's name has been added to specific works that she really was the driving force behind. So who was uh, Charlotte Perrion? What was her relationship to Le Corbusier? Yeah, great question. Um, she actually applied to work for uh, Le Corbusier, who's, I think, a, a fairly well-known Swiss architect. When she applied to work for him in 1927, he famously said, oh, sorry, we don't embroider cushions here. And, you know, very quickly changed his feelings on her work when he saw some of the work that she had done and she became very uh, influential in his office. You know, the iconic chaise lounge that he's known for, she actually was the, the driving force behind the creation of that piece. And she is the model in the photo you see there because she photo directed how that iconic piece should be. Right. That famous image of, of, it's not her, but it's a, of a woman. No, she's actually in her. Oh, it is yeah. her. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so th- yeah, I thought that was an interesting kind of contrast between the design world and, and the visual art world. So, so Alexa, kind of turning to the specifics of this list, mm-hmm. which is more contemporary, um, yeah. what are some of the issues kind of driving gender inequality in the design world today? That you, that you heard people kind of speaking about? It's interesting. A lot of these women are thinking about gender inequality in the design world when they're approaching their work. Um, 
In particular, I'm thinking about Alexandra Lang, who's a design and architecture critic. She has been integral in kind of um, shedding light on and shifting the conversation in architecture and design criticism to spotlight underrepresented women or underrecognized women who have contributed to the history of design. She's been a very outspoken advocate for people like Jane Jacobs, um, a very influential urban planner and um, preservationist in New York City's history. Another example is Paula Scher, who is a very pioneering graphic designer. She's a partner of Pentagram, which is a branding firm that has been behind many logos you've seen from Citibank to Tiffany & Co. But Scher in particular does a lot of pro bono work that supports women's rights organizations. So she has worked with Planned Parenthood recently. She did the branding um, for a nonprofit called Period Equity, which is aimed at eliminating America's tax on tampons just recently, just this year. So Alex, how does broader social uh, and economic problems sort of impact how women are able to enter and stay in the design world? Yeah, uh, many of the women in Alexa's article cite equity as the number one issue uh, for the design industry. And I think the issues that are unique there include, uh, you know, while schools are attracting just as many women as men, once they enter the workforce, there are lower wages, they have long hours required, uh, and maybe in not so much, you know, people aren't being very flexible about allowing for women to raise uh, children and, and have families. So they're not necessarily reaching leadership roles that that men are in architecture, in graphic design, uh, in product design. And, and, and reaching leadership roles is kind of important because, you know, I imagine that that with design, given how collaborative it is and the sort of the studio environment, there's a lot of mentorship that's required. There's a lot of forming forming like relationships Exactly. I mean, without, you know, women in leadership roles, they're, they're not acting as mentors to the next generation of women. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a major problem. It was interesting, though, when I was working on this list, working with you, Alex, working with other people on our team, the, the women who came to the fore and who I ended up including in the, in the article, many of them are leading their fields. Um, and they are acting as these mentors. And it's it seems like a really exciting shift in the design world. It seems like we're at the beginning of of a change that will obviously take a long time and a lot of work. But um, many of these women on the list have been mentors to younger women. Absolutely. And women like Roseanne Summerson at RISD, uh, you know, she cites uh, diversity and inclusivity as one of her number one aims right now. Um, she founded the furniture design program at RISD. Now she's the president. She was a student at RISD. So, you know, the designers coming out of that program are certainly going to take that goal with them when they enter the workforce. And you sort of hinted at this, that there's a lot of different fields represented on this list. You know, there's there's curators, designers, etc. So can you maybe just talk about why you thought it was important to, to sort of have this breadth? Yeah, Isaac, it's interesting. Um, we decided to take this expansive look at design because a lot of people don't know how widely design affects the world and and um, understand all its different manifestations. So yes, we we have graphic designers on the list. We have furniture designers and lighting designers on the list. We have design curators, but we also have product designers who work for tech companies like Slack. We have 
urbanists, urban planners, uh, sustainable designers like Liz Ogbu, who are thinking about social problems and how design might be able to solve them. So this is really an expansive look at design. Yeah, one of my favorite projects on this list is Tanya Agonigua's uh, Ambos project, Art Made Between Opposite Sides. And, you know, uh, it's a multidisciplinary project dealing with the U.S.-Mexico border, very timely. Uh, She actually, between the ages of four and 18, uh, came over to the U.S. just to study and went back to, you know, sleep in Mexico at night. So she's working with artists across both borders in a way to address binational transition and identity and the ways that art and craft and design can connect us. And do we have any idea of what that's going to look like? From what I understand, they're repurposing a vacant storefront at the U.S.-Mexico border crossing. So uh, they want that to act as a bit of a lab for creative collaboration across both countries. I also know a major theme is sustainability and sort of the role of design in kind of tackling climate change and other sort of broader issues, which seems like there could actually be like a very tangible utilitarian impact there. Yeah, definitely. Um, The way these designers approach sustainability ranges, it can exist on kind of a smaller scale or a more intimate scale. So a lighting designer like Lindsay Edelman is really adamant that she doesn't outsource her production around the world, that it stays close to home, you know, kind of reduces carbon footprint and her carbon footprint in the process and engages local artisans as well. Whereas a designer like um, Liz Ogbu, who is not only a designer, but an urbanist, a social innovator, um, is really looking at global issues of sustainability and how they might be solved through design, whether it's a tool that gets clean water more efficiently um, or t- transmits or transports clean water more efficiently to to areas that need it or... Um, um, there's a there's a range of projects she's working on that are that are tackling these issues. So when you're dealing with design, which encompasses, you know, Alexis, you were sort of saying like digital objects. It can be sort of, you know, I think Boeing 747s are considered design objects by some. Um, as a curator, how do you sort of approach this subject? Well, then we need to look to what Paola Antonelli is doing. She is the most progressive design curator in the world, and. You know, she's the person who thought to acquire the at sign into MoMA's permanent collection, Uh, then the emojis uh, recently. Uh, And yes, now uh, 747. Alexa, you might have more insight into that project. It's still in progress. Um, It's a dream that she's had for, I think, upwards of 20 years to, to convince a museum to collect uh, an airplane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they have, MoMA has one though. They have no. They have a helicopter. They have a helicopter. helicopter. Um, but I think the crux of of this acquisition for Antonelli is that the airplane remain in the air. It remain functional. It's not going to be a physical object in the collection. It's going to be a conceptual acquisition, <laughs> and um, that's that's interesting. And that and that's that's what the at symbol um, was as well for her. It was a conceptual acquisition. It's not a physical object. It's but it's um, a piece of design that's integral to how society operates and how humans communicate. And I think that's that's how she's approaching her acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And and what's sort of her 
can you give me a quick sketch of just sort of her past and her history before before sort of becoming the one of the most progressive curators in yeah, design? Yeah, absolutely. So she went to school for architecture in Milan, and the way she describes it is, you know, she was in school with 15,000 other people. So in Italy, if you weren't sure what you wanted to do, you went to school for architecture. So her, <laughs> her father was a little bit worried. Um, but then she came to work at Domus, I believe, um, which is still today one of the best uh, design, you know, periodicals. And she uh, was doing some great journalistic work, came to work for one of the uh, design uh, symposiums that happened in Denver, um, and then saw a posting for a position at MoMA. And she already knew some of the people working in the design department or uh, in the architecture department at MoMA and uh, applied and never looked back. She's been there since uh, the 90s. Yeah, 1994. 1994. And she's also not kind of afraid to venture beyond the, the white walls of MoMA and and even even use like the digital space as a place to to curate exhibitions. Absolutely. I, I'm almost certain she was the one to give MoMA their first website. Um, I think she coded it herself. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a subject she was really passionate about, which was design and violence, because not everything designed is for the greater good as we know, and th these are the subjects we need to dig in and, and look at closely. Um, so she actually created an online forum for that in lieu of a show when when the museum kind of declined uh, hosting a show in, in the timeline that, that worked for her. So um, the online forum then resulted in a book and, you know, talks and I believe now, uh, you know, a physical show. So um, she also hosts R&D salons, research and development at MoMA, where uh, subjects such as, you know, death and fluidity uh, can get teased out across many disciplines. And Alex, I know we've we've sort of talked about this thing, and I confess I've, we've been talking about it, and I don't really know what it is. Speculative design. Yeah. What do you mean when you when, when you say that? Uh, kind of the, the poster children for speculative design are Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby. They, uh, in their book, Speculative Everything, kind of propose a new design that's used to create not things, but ideas. This type of design helps us envision a, a future, and it doesn't have to be a better future. Speculative design can pinpoint, you know, kind of a not so great future. Mm -hmm. It's a tool for us as a society. I'm still a little confused. So when you say design ideas, does that mean, what, what does that kind of look like? Good question. Um, it could be, okay, for thinking about self-driving cars, right? Um, there could be, there's a project that Dunn and Raby worked on that actually gives personality to these self-driving cars. And, um, you know, they can range. So some actually allow for only one standing passenger. One allows for two standing passengers next to each other. One shows two separated, um, you know, little bubbles for people. And so it's starting to get at some questions of how we're going to wish to interact with one another in the digital age. And these cars all optimize for movement with regard to different um, different things like uh, socioeconomic patterns. So. Um, this type of speculative design could just be a model or a one-off 
uh, or almost look like an art piece. These aren't actual prototypes for real cars. They're just bringing up issues that will become actual problems when we live in the age of self-driving cars. So a little variation on our normal segment this week. Where in the art world are you going to be drinking white wine? This week we're going to have a design focus. Woo! I know. <laughs> Didn't see it coming. Um, Alexa, let's start with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to head to the Brooklyn Navy Yard this weekend for a project that just opened last night by a young graphic designer and furniture designer named Alexandra Proba. She has been working on this really cool project for the last four, three or four years called Poster a Day. And she designs a single poster every day. And and she designs them in response to um, prompts she gets from the public at large. Whoever wants to ask her to design a poster, she does it in response to them. And, and appropriately during Women's Month, um, this year she is designing posters in response to um, women's mentors, um, women who are mentors to other women. And the show at Cooler Gallery um, displays many of her posters that she's designed over the last couple of years. And Alex, what will you be checking out? So I already saw the show, but it's open. You can go see it too. Faye Too Good at Friedman Benda. Uh, Artsy actually hosted an event the night before the opening, and I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with the designer. She's based in London. And she designs everything from clothes to interiors to objects as well. And this is her biggest show to date. Um, It includes everything from chairs and tables to textiles. And it's a beautiful show. She has done some really interesting work with materials that uh, are incredibly hard to work with. She employed the use of a Czech glass maker who typically only makes lenses for ships and things like that to cast a chair that takes five months to cure. So at the end of, you know, it's basically cooling down for five months. So when they took the mold off around Christmas time, they kind of crossed their fingers <laughs> that it hadn't cracked. So there's some just really beautiful work. Don't miss it in Chelsea. And I'm going to go to the MoMA um, to see how should we live propositions for the modern interior. It's such a great title for a design show. I think a lot of design is answering that question uh, in one way or another. And Alex, you were sort of saying that there are a lot of women in this in this show whose role in sort of some seminal designs of the American interiors only, or the world actually yeah. across the whole globe, yeah. um, is, is only sort of more recently coming to the fore. So it's good to see uh, MoMA kind of recognizing that. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests, Alex and Alexa, for joining us. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Brooke for free.